Welcome to Carbon Times. As the global drive towards creating a more sustainable world for us all continues to gain pace, our goal is to create interesting content where we will speak to people from across all sectors on what can drive sustainability in everything that we do. We are inviting interesting guests along to talk to us about their experiences and what they are doing to share knowledge, experience, innovation and ambitions. As ever, we want to get everybody talking. We all have a responsibility to create a more sustainable world. It stands for Environmental, Social and Governance Metrics. And you may hear that and think, well, it means do-gooding. You might also think that actually it reeks of hypocrisy, given that many financiers and companies are tossing it around these days. However, there's something really important to consider, which is today, ESG is as much about risk management as it is actually about social activism or trying to change the world. If companies ignore what people used to call externalities, in other words, a company's environmental footprint, its impact on a community, what's happening in its supply chain, what's happening in terms of social issues like diversity, inequality, if companies and investors ignore those issues, it has a nasty habit of coming back to bite them. Welcome back to Carbon Times. In this episode, we'll be talking all things ESG strategy related. We're delighted to be joined from Ben from CIFA Strategy. Welcome, Ben. Welcome. Nice to see you, Paul. Can you give us a little bit of a journey about Ben and how you've got to where you are, and then a little bit about how you fit into CIFA Strategy and what you do, please? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been kind of involved in kind of corporate affairs and sustainability for, gosh, you know, 25, 30 years now. And fortunate enough to be involved in-house for a few companies where, you know, sustainability issues probably kind of touched them quite early on in their lives. But I spent uh, about five, six years head of kind of corporate affairs uh, at a company called CDC, which was a kind of development financier. Uh, owned by the British government. And because we were making investments around the emerging markets, we had to demonstrate from an early stage that we were making a visible impact with the investments we made. So although returns were important as well, it was all about demonstrating how we were improving the livelihoods of people on the ground in emerging markets around the world. So spent a lot of time then demonstrating uh, performance and kind of social impact, et cetera. Then was fortunate enough to kind of move to Heathrow Airport, a completely different type of organisation, but one where areas and aspects such as kind of climate change and environmental impacts were very high on the agenda. At the time, we were looking to build a third runway at Heathrow Airport. So there was a lot of discussion around things like air quality, around the environmental impacts around the airport and spending a lot of time with the local kind of communities, working with them to understand how we could do this in a responsible kind of manner kind of going forward. So a really interesting place from an environmental point of view, but also from a kind of stakeholder engagement piece. I spent about four or five years also in Copenhagen in Denmark with the Carlsberg Group. You know, the Scandinavians are quite forward thinking around ESG and sustainability. And we were lucky enough to kind of put sustainability right at the heart of the kind of business strategy for Carlsberg. And once we've done that, we obviously had to have actions, measurements in place, et cetera, 
as we started to embed ESG and sustainability throughout the organization. And we got involved in, as well as doing some of the kind of more basic areas, we started thinking very closely around circular economies, working with our suppliers, et cetera, around packaging, bottling, et cetera, and really thinking about the consequences of ESG and sustainability throughout the supply chain. Uh, and that eventually led into changing our narrative, changing the way we advertised and positioned ourselves as well. So three different kind of roles, but actually a really useful background for then coming back to the UK about five years ago or so and setting up a CEPA strategy with an old kind of colleague of mine. And my colleague, Fergus's background is very much more kind of capital markets, whereas mine was more kind of in-house kind of sustainability side and kind of came together and started talking to people about ESG and embedding it in your businesses. And I think it's fair to say that probably four or five years ago in the UK, particularly people were interested, but it's fair to say, and they gave us their time, but they weren't necessarily saying this is right at the top of our agenda, something that we will be thinking about in the future. And I think it's fair to say that in the last kind of two, two and a half years, it's completely changed. And I think we were concerned that areas like aspects such as COVID would actually slow things down and perhaps paralyze people's thinking as they thought more short term about cash flow, et cetera. But actually, I think it gave people a chance to think about the future and think about their people a bit more. And so it, it's actually kind of gone right up the agenda and accelerated. And I think other areas like the tragic consequences of George Floyd and, and those kind of areas have also made people think a little bit more about diversity and how they treat people, et cetera. So I think you know, the last two years have been a really kind of interesting time and the level of engagement with clients and potential clients is, is kind of night and day. And whilst the legislation was always in the background kind of getting people to start thinking about these kind of areas, I think it was only when, you know, the investors also really started to take more notice and, you know, kind of get much more involved. Yeah, that leads on nicely, really. I think we've all seen a massive transition. You know, most of my career has been in either compliance around the real estate world and then, you know, a big stint in environment and sustainability across the whole planning piece from, you know, from start to finish from infrastructure and all sorts of property. But the questions that we responded to in those types of, you know, engagements and the, the questions that we were asked are, were very different and very changed over that period of time over the last four or five years. And I think it has become much more of a of a day-to-day conversation with people and people really understanding and connecting to that message of how important having a strong ESG direction is. What do you see as have been the key drivers around that over the years? So I think, you know, sustainability has always been in the background for quite a lot of companies. And there have been companies that have been kind of reporting on what they've been doing in sustainability for quite a long time. But I think a lot of that's been framed more in corporate social responsibility. And I think the difference now is that ESG is seen, you know, as something which actually has financial implications for a business as well. I think the big kind of changes recently, so, you know, the Financial Reporting Council and those kind of bodies that are out there are starting to get greater teeth in terms of how they scrutinise companies' performance around culture, etc., diversity, gender pay, all, all those kind of areas. So that in the background has been quite interesting. And then obviously there's been more kind of 
mandatory pieces of legislation kind of well not legislation but recommendations coming in place so you're seeing you know this year most premium listed companies have to disclose their you know the potential risks attached to kind of climate change what that financial disclosures around that so that's happening this year next year once again listed companies are meant to be disclosing their plans around net zero thinking net zero strategy you know and it's not just about putting out there a figure saying we're going to be net zero by 2040 or 2050 but just showing evidence about how you're going to move in that direction over time what the incremental changes you're going to see and as you know well paul you know there's been there's more guidance around uh, epc ratings etc at the moment um, so just in the last year or so, really starting to see companies involved in the kind of real estate built sector, really focusing on the kind of quality and performance of their buildings as they look ahead to make sure they reach all the kind of deadlines in place over the next few years around EPCs, etc. So those kind of things, I think, are, you know, are focusing people's minds more. And then I guess, particularly on the investors side, Whereas I think investors a few years ago would have been making investment decisions and then thinking about ESG and sustainability issues slightly more from a kind of ticks box mentality, you're now seeing those considerations really being built into the kind of investment process going forward and decision making kind of going forward. And the reason they're doing that is not just from a nice to have. I mean, there's just a lot of evidence out there that yeah, investing in these type of companies who take ESG and sustainability seriously over time tend to perform better as companies. And you're seeing over the last few years, it's extraordinary how much kind of inflows of funds are going into ESG funds and kind of impact funds. And they're not just doing that. Yeah, as I said, they're not doing that just for the, the good of it. They're doing it because it makes commercial sense. And those yeah. companies are receiving greater valuations. Yeah, which again is a good transition to see that those things are becoming more important. It's, it's a good point you make there around the connection between, you know, well-run, sustainable organisations with that fundamental principles at heart always tend to do better, you know, and perform better than organisations where it is seen as traditionally more of a tick box type exercise. You know, those ones leading the charge really around that. I agree. I would say, you know, if you look from a kind of, you know, Harvard put out quite a lot of reports around this over the years, but definitely those companies that are set up more responsibly, you're seeing greater productivity, greater efficiency, you're seeing greater retention of staff, which is, of course, a really important, the whole talent management thing is really important. You know, people don't join companies necessary just to earn a salary. They want to believe in the company. They want to understand its purpose and where it's kind of going. So there's all those kind of things. And also, you know, those kind of companies are kind of generally, yeah, receiving better reputations, greater brand loyalty, etc. And as a result, with all those things tend to be companies that are getting a better valuation if they are listed businesses. And now what you're seeing is there's better access to kind of so-called green financing. So they are getting access to potentially cheaper capital as well. So there's lots of good reasons to do this. It feels like to me, a lot of this is people driven and this is it's slowly started to become the norm. And a lot of that has come from decisions people are starting to make over the years. And you made a couple of good points there around people in employment, that people aren't only looking for the best salary, they're looking for 
what's the best, you know, the best organization to work for. People are very much taking, you know, great pride in company surveys at corporate levels and how they perform in the, you know, the times list of best companies to work for. All of those badges are being really, you know, really critical. And I think people, the general public, they're all helping and have helped over the past few years to develop this as the conversation has become more accessible and it's been more widely and publicly available that finding out about climate change and the environment and its importance and your role in it and you know we've all started recycling more over the last six years and we've all started to you know see the transition to electric cars and we've seen more wind turbines and all of these little incremental things that help people form the right decisions around you know that ethics in all of their day-to-day decision making brands they're loyal to things they buy who they might work for so i think have you seen that as well at board level where that conversation is driven from both their clients their customers and their people yeah so i think one thing that's really interesting is i think a lot of within the kind of the culture within organizations you know there are a lot of millennials in these organizations now who are being much more vociferous, much more visible about these kind of areas and what they believe in and taking Mm -hmm. action, which is good. And now what you're seeing is that that's filtering up, you know, to boards and leadership teams as well, really now going on the front foot, whereas perhaps that wasn't the case, you know, several years ago. So it's being looked at throughout the kind of organisation. And what you're also seeing is, you know, if you're working for, you know, an FMCG business or anything, you know, your consumers are demanding more from your products now. The big companies like Procter & Gamble and Unilever are really kind of putting more and more pressure on their supply chains to make sure there's we're behaving responsibly throughout the supply chain as well. So the pressure is kind of coming from all different kind of angles at the moment, which is really interesting. It's really exciting, I think, as well. And I think... One of the other key aspects that we talk about all the time as a business, and you know, you and I have had this very same conversation very recently in working together as two organizations and that collaborative piece that's so important around this. And I think, I guess from my experience, what I've seen as well is that nobody can do this in isolation. And, And I mean, nobody in its entire sense. There's not one role in an organization that can make the change. There isn't one person in a community that can make the change. There isn't one seat in a government that can make the change. You know, this is truly an agenda that everybody has to work together. And again, I think the knowledge and the passion and the accessibility of information that people are able to get nowadays is, again, helping that cross-pollination even within organisations. So, you know, the accounting team and the procurement team and the delivery operational team that maybe weren't massively interlinked before on all types of subjects this is a common pathway for everybody you know and so when the organization is making changes that have ramifications across all you know you might find that each of those particular departments or sections has a champion or a lead for sustainability or the environment so again it's you know from my own experience in my last role when we put that type of opportunity up across the team it was do you want to be the you know sustainability lead for your department we'd have five or six people put their hand up straight away you know because everybody has that commonality around it again is that something you feel drives and helps i completely agree and you know i think within clients there needs to be collaboration because generally within lots of companies they're doing lots of good things in pockets and places in silos and so helping them all to kind of come together to you know work in a slightly more holistic way 
uh, is really, really important. So yes, those champions are really, really important. And I think, you know, going back to your collaboration point, you know, the, the reason why you and I are talking is because we're now working together because, you know, CEPA strategy certainly can't do anything. And we're bringing in specialists to help on clients in all sorts of different areas at the moment. Some of those will be around cultural change. Some of them are around net zero strategy. Some will be just kind of collecting kind of greenhouse gas emissions, et cetera, or thinking, helping companies think about their kind of positive social impact. So ESG sustainability kind of touches lots of different areas within an organization and society generally. So, yeah, as we said the other day, you know, collaboration is absolutely critical in this. I find as well, going back to the point you made around the larger organisations and now having to, if you like, go through those additional reporting hoops that they have. So, you know, this year looking at the genuine impact that they have and what they're doing and having to actually have a plan in place for genuine change on how they impact climate change and what impact it will have to them financially, et cetera, all of those kind of bits. Now, traditionally, I guess you find that when that type of reporting is placed upon the larger organisations, there tends to be a natural cascade of that that will then go to, you know, through their supply chain or their procurement channels that they might naturally then start to adopt a similar prospect because it feels like it becomes part of the company, you know, ethics and ethos. If it's right and it feels right, I guess, have you seen any of that mentality trickling down? Yeah, so I would say it's kind of work in progress. Yeah, I guess if you're a FTSE 100 company, you've been doing sustainability reporting, etc., cetera, for, for quite a long kind of time. And I think there's been an element for those kind of companies getting their kind of house in order first. And now what they're doing is really working with their supply chain. So if you, you know, once again, if you're an FMCG business, you're now wanting to really be working with your suppliers and partners right the way down to the origins of where your products come from, be they farms, etc. So there's kind of a lot of that going on. I would say, you know, the, the big difference is if you're a kind of FTSE 100 kind of company, you tend to have a lot of resources and you tend to have a lot of people internally helping you around your sustainability ESG agenda. The challenge for the kind of mid, small kind of cap companies, which tends to be a bit more where CEPA strategy tends to work, is that they are not so well resourced in these kind of areas. And for lots of them, they're starting from scratch for the first time. So that's where we're kind of helping a lot at the moment. But you're right, this is not something companies should be doing just in isolation. They should be working with their kind of partners and you know, throughout their organisations. What do you see as the biggest blockers at the moment to somebody getting started on their ESG journey? As you know, you mentioned small to mid cap companies there. I guess it's a good point there that a lot of them probably want to do something. But what is yeah. preventing everyone doing it? I would say broadly, there is a recognition now from you know, perhaps the small and mid cap companies or all companies that, you know, this is a good thing to do and it makes good commercial sense to do this. I think the challenge is lots of small and mid-sized kind of companies particularly don't necessarily know where to start. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of competing agendas out there. They're starting to kind of face pressure from different stakeholders. They're getting scrutiny from different people. They're being ranked and rated by different kind of financial agencies, etc. And also there's quite a lot of confusion at the moment around all the different kind of frameworks and reporting kind of principles out there at the moment. So, you know, I think quite a lot of them start to feel a bit like they're kind of a rabbit caught in kind of headlights to start with. So I think that's probably mainly one of the blockers, the fact that it's changing so quickly at the moment that people just are slightly kind of confused where to kind of start. So 
from our point of view, we definitely spent a bit of time at the beginning, you know, just working with leadership teams and boards just to help them understand what their priorities are for them as a business and then think about, yeah, a kind of roadmap over the next year in terms of getting them started. Where is sustainability? Another kind of blocker, I think, is where sustainability has traditionally been probably done within a particular kind of department of an organisation. For this really to be driven through an organisation, it really does require leadership from the top as well. I'm not saying that's a blocker, but that's something that's it's really helpful to have that leadership there championing getting this embedded properly in the business. I would say those are the two main things. And just making sure that what you're doing from a ESG sustainability point of view is kind of aligned to your business strategy. It mm. should be supporting your business strategy as well. A question that's popped into my mind then, as you've been working on, you know, that ESG strategy thing for a number of years, the whole net zero conversation and how that now fits into the world and everyone's striving for net zero, I guess, but I'm yet to meet anyone that can, you know, clearly identify exactly what it means to them and their organisation. So do you feel that that potentially is one of the areas muddy in the water slightly because there's a bit of ambiguity around it? Funnily enough, I think it's causing companies to you know, focus on it a lot at the moment. I think that, as I said to you earlier, there's one thing which is just saying we're going to make sure that we're aligned with the kind of government's deadline of net zero by 2050. But the things people are focusing on at the moment, one is making sure they could be net zero on those parts of their operations that they have direct kind of control over, which is the so-called scope one and scope two and normally they are setting an earlier deadline for getting to that for their own businesses and then when it comes to those slightly more kind of indirect kind of emissions carbon emissions etc which is further down the supply chain etc that can be much much more challenging for companies for lots of companies that's the largest proportion of their emissions so broadly they are kind of setting later deadlines for that i think what the expectation at the moment is companies are expected to just tell people about their thinking around this, the journey they're on, and how they are planning on getting to those targets at the end. It's not enough just to say, we're going to be net zero by 2050 without actually having thought through the ramifications of that and how you're going to do that. You know, it's there now and it's focusing people's minds. And it's actually quite a useful way for people to start to think about, you know, what, what they need to be doing for their kind of business at the moment. But it's not without its challenges. You know, we've been just doing a recent energy audit for a company, which in the UK is just using renewable electricity, et cetera, run efficiently. But the other side is based in the US where power is cheap, but there's no renewable electricity. And so, you know, there's lots of kind of competing agendas that are going on as well at the moment. Yeah, I think a global business definitely has a different level of challenge in being able to determine what, again, what net zero is to them as an organisation. It has made people, I think, focus on some key aspects of what they do. I think the scope analysis was an interesting exercise for a lot of organisations, actually, you know, putting it into labelled areas. You know, you've got your scope one, two and three emissions and having to actually label your activities against those parameters, I think was an interesting journey for many organizations to realize, well, wow, we have so little control over so much of what we influence, you know, and that I think is something that as we go forward, we'll see much more, much more transition to things. Yeah. I think there's definitely a role there for I always say this to people as well, because I again it links back to that collaborative piece that 
I find that there's so much of the market that is struggling to access the right advice because they don't know where to look, maybe, or it's inaccessible, or it's too expensive, or it's perceived to be too expensive. And I think that's some of the role of the world of consulting and the work, you know, to to help that cascade down, help those processes and policies and procedures and help everything become more accessible and easier for organizations rather than it just being set for an organization and done you know it's kind of the sustainability bit is so collaborative you know the being able to influence your supply chain and your procurement routes and all of those particular aspects in a positive way going through is what those big buyers have a big opportunity to be able to drive yeah, I think, you know, for companies, no one size fits all. I mean, we're finding working with kind of companies at the moment, you know, it's very bespoke what you do from one company to the next as well at the moment. I think we're finding what's really important is just really understanding the business and spending some time with them as well. I think the fact that I was fortunate enough to be in-house in kind of interesting companies having to face some of these issues and having colleagues who've spent a lot of time in the capital markets as well, also just you know, it, it makes sure that what, what we're trying to do is kind of realistic, but kind of commercially focused as well. We're not trying to be too evangelical about it all and just say, this is what you need to do and overlaying it on them, mm-hmm. but really understanding what works for them as a business. We've got very good examples of that from a, you know, from a real estate perspective as well, where you might have a very ethical investing process. And that's, you know, that's what you want to do. And you always want it to be you know, the most sustainable process that you've gone through in terms of your investments, but your investment window might fall outside of, you know, the government requiring you to do certain things. So how far do you go in that when you know you're not, you know, let's say, for example, you've got eight years to transition to a certain level of energy performance, but you know, you're only going to hold that property for five years. But, you know, so how does but then your strategy says that if you've got the opportunity to do things, you should do them. You know, it's it's all of those slightly conflicting messages, I think. I agree. And I think you know, what's interesting is that you start talking to some of these companies, you know, particularly real estate, et cetera, and addressing some of these kind of ESG sustainability issues and challenges kind of goes to the heart of your business model. So if you are expected to be making lots of changes, but they aren't necessarily going to be factored into the valuation of the business fully yet, but you are a company that recycles properties in a kind of private equity kind of model over five, seven years, you know, those are considerations you have to take into place as well. So yeah, it's really kind of fascinating, which is why all, you know, all factions of a company need to be involved in the decision-making here. It's not something that you're just doing so you can put it into your annual report. It's something that really is also influencing your decision making going forward as a business. So for those people out there that might be listening that might work for or own a company and they haven't embarked on an ESG journey in any earnest yet. And they, you know, what advice would you give them in terms of, you know, it's not only the right thing to do, but, you know, to look at what you're doing, the impact you have on the environment, you know, on the community you serve and how you keep governance around that. But you know, what are the key benefits to those organisations of embarking on the journey? Why should they do it? Well, I think one in lots of cases, they kind of need to do it from a kind of compliance point of view. But as I mentioned previously, you know, there's a lot of evidence out there now that by doing these things and becoming more efficient and acting as a more responsible kind of company, it helps your company in numerous kind of ways, be it premiising your products, getting competitive advantage, etc. So there are lots of good reasons for doing this. And the more and more, you know, we talk to investors, 
you're talking to ESG fund managers, we're talking to impact investors who are looking for those kind of more responsible companies to put into certain funds, which may carry a higher valuation, et cetera. So I think there's lots of good, compelling reasons why you should be doing this. And I think actually, from an internal perspective, you know, it's a great way in terms of uniting your business behind a kind of common purpose that everyone buys into. So the whole yeah, employee engagement side is, is really kind of important as well and mm-hmm. attracting new talent. In terms of my advice for companies thinking about this for the first time, I think it's really important to just at the beginning have a kind of honest appraisal about where you are at the moment, what you need to do, have a look at what your peers are doing, a bit of benchmarking there, start engaging with some of your stakeholders because they really appreciate the dialogue. And it's great for you to demonstrate you're committed to these kind of areas and chatting and listening to people's kind of views. I think that's really important. And, and, you know, as quickly as possible, get this as a kind of agenda item, you know, on the executive committee or the board. So it's got direction and leadership from the top as well. I think all those things are really important to kind of get it started. Excellent. So are there any particular areas of business or sectors that you feel are are really charging the way forward? And conversely, then, do you feel there are any other sectors that are lagging behind in the journey? That's a difficult. I think, I mean, I think particularly from a UK perspective, you know, obviously the FTSE 100 companies, but for lots of reasons, are kind of probably a, a bit ahead of the game. And there's been more kind of legislation and scrutiny around that kind of area. And, and, yeah, and particular kind of sectors have had to focus on it more because they probably had greater scrutiny and pressure from stakeholders and investors or you know, banks, etc. over a kind of period of time. I wouldn't say, from my experience, there are sectors that are lagging. There are probably sectors where it hasn't touched on them quite so quickly as other sectors, but they're now all kind of getting involved. So... Um, yeah, I wouldn't attribute particular sectors saying they are lagging behind at the moment, but there are certainly, you know, areas like FMCG businesses, which are probably, you know, consumer facing more than are facing this more. There are ones that are perhaps further down the supply chain who are, are probably been a bit more hidden in the past, but are now realising that they have to do this as well. And I think that's one of the reasons why this whole area is so fascinating, really, that it does touch everybody and it is a responsibility of every organization no matter what they do so you're never going to find one way you know one template to be able to do that for the whole world are you so it requires a lot of knowledge it requires a lot of help it requires a lot of well i guess collaboration being the key word around that again yeah and i think you know this is a learning experience for everybody there's no perfect answer for every company as you said yourself that you just roll out as a blueprint you know, you, you need to work through and collaborate with companies. And it's a kind of journey you're on. And I think the expectation from stakeholders at the moment is that you are on that journey. And they're keen, as I spoke to an investor the other day, and he said, well, we just want to have a dialogue and understand some of the challenges going forward. And the fact that the company started to consider those potential difficulties in the future. So yeah, it's not perfect. You certainly don't want to be greenwashing, etc. But I think it's good for companies to be on that journey at the moment. Excellent. We'll more or less wrap it up there. Thanks for joining us, first and foremost. I'll ask you my favourite question just to challenge everybody at the end of the podcast. So if you had the opportunity to have lunch with Boris Johnson tomorrow and you got to influence him in one way or another, what message would you want him to take away with him? You know, so from a, I guess from an ESG sustainability point of view, I would have to say, you know, the leadership around COP26 last year, the big climate change conference, uh, was really 
encouraging. And I thought, you know, so I think on a kind of practical note, you know, keeping that momentum going there, not making lots of statements, which then you know, aren't followed through. I think that's really kind of important. So good start in that respect. And let's, let's make sure that kind of continues. And then I think just generally, to quote one of the people he most admires, you know, Churchill, who said, the price of greatness is responsibility. And so I think in everything you're doing, if you've got behaving responsibly, acting responsibly in the back of your mind, I think that's a huge asset. Excellent. Okay, so just as a final note, then, if any of our guests would like to get hold of CIFA's strategy and talk to you about their ESG strategy, development or improvement, uh, what's the best way for people to reach you? Well, I mean, they can either speak to you, Paul, but otherwise, I mean, probably the best thing is the first instance is to kind of look at our website, which is cifastrategy.com and our contact details are there. Perfect. Okay. Well, as I said, Ben, thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you as ever for joining us, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll see you again next time on Carbon Times.